Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Last week, around the time Prime Minister Justin Trudeau flew to Washington, D.C. to meet with the U.S. President Joe Biden, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a sprawling $2 trillion infrastructure bill that would give buyers of electric vehicles a tax credit of up to $12,500, provided the vehicles are made in the U.S. by union workers. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke about the implications of this tax credit with Flavio Volpe, president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association of Canada. It seems clear that it's meant to incentivize automakers to build their EV assembly lines in the U.S., but Volpe said that flies in the face of our recent trade agreement with the U.S. and goes against decades of integration of our auto sectors. He predicted the bill would change before it signed into law, and our discussion touched on a lot of other issues, including the ambitious government policies meant to accelerate electric vehicle adoption, the decline of U.S. manufacturing, and the rise of protectionism. As always, this was edited for clarity and brevity. Flavio Volpe, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Absolutely. The U.S. House of Representatives just passed the signature infrastructure bill of President Biden's tenure, and Trudeau had just flown down to D.C. You were there. And according to the news reports, Trudeau was really in a huff, or, or he was at least emphatic, that a tiny thing in this giant $1.75 trillion infrastructure bill, a certain electric vehicle tax credit will really have a very damaging effect on our auto industry in Canada because it's going to drive EV production specifically into union-backed factories in the U.S. How concerned are you about this development? Well, I think that, um, that this proposal is potentially more harmful than uh than uh, anything that Donald Trump threatened us with. Uh, the worst he threatened us with was a 25% tariff on Canadian uh, imported vehicles into the U.S. Uh, this is the equivalent of about a 33% price drop for American cars. So in a relative sense, I mean, it's a different instrument, but it, it gets to the heart of the same proposition, which is to make American-made vehicles a much cheaper proposition for Americans. It is counter to our new NAFTA, the USMCA, and uh, to uh, all countries' terms of the WTO. You know, you can't discriminate by country of origin. So, you know, the, the prime minister was emphatic. The timing of the issue is just coincidentally at a time when uh, the bill got to Congress. We'd been working with the federal government about three months on this. And when it first came up, uh, you know, in defense of the, the prime minister on this one, they were in the middle of a federal election here. So hard for him to uh, take the lead in the middle of an election to go down there. And it's certainly not part of the caretaker powers of, of a government. That being said, you know, that's just one step in the congressional process. Passed by the House, it's going to the Senate. And I think your listeners know that the Senate is a 50-50 balance. Tie-breaking vote going to the, of course, the vice president. We're expecting a vote that, that is that tight. Uh, the process is a Senate parliamentarian is going to look at the House bill and really give it something uh, that's colloquially called in uh, Washington the birdbath after a uh, Senator Bird who set up uh, you know some rules. On 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Whether the uh, legislation uh, can be debated by the Senate, including whether this budget bill can impose policy outside of its timing scope, like this incentive. So there could be changes, in other words, in the Senate. Yeah, there definitely could be changes. But but really importantly, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia has got a Toyota plant in his backyard, said he won't support it. So they might lose the vote anyway. I see. Let me back up a minute. You mentioned that this is contrary to our recent trade agreement with the U.S. that we signed just under the last president, President Trump. How so? So what we agreed is if you want to make cars tariff-free in the region. Of North America. Yeah. 75% of the parts have to be sourced from within North America. It's also in part of that agreement that none of the three countries could implement any uh, regulatory or legislative vehicle that uh, would discriminate on, against any of the other three, the other two countries' products based on the country of origin. You know, you, you might want to favor something because it gets manufactured in a facility that pays more than $16 an hour, a very specific item within the NAFTA agreement. But you can't say no Canada, no Mexico, or just the U.S. And, and this is precisely what they're doing. This is being framed as a labor issue in the U.S., but here in Canada, it's hard not to look at this bill and see it as an extension of the type of protectionism that started under the last U.S. president. Trump implemented tariffs, as you mentioned, and now Biden has this buy American policy, which is very much geared towards restoring U.S. industry and manufacturing, particularly driving that into labor-friendly states. Do you think it, this is going to be successful for Biden and he'll keep doing this? That's a really good question. He is being specific about labor-organized automakers versus other ones, with the implication that you know if you do business with General Motors and they've got UAW in there, that there's better conditions for workers than if you do business with uh, Toyota. And uh, you know, study after study after study has shown that labor pushes and labor rallies at foreign automakers haven't worked because, of course, there is no pay in equity. And so, one of the things in this currently, for the first five years they offer this incentive, 4,500 of it is only actionable if car comes from a unionized auto plant. So I guess the workers in Kentucky who are building Toyotas or the ones in Ohio making uh, Honda don't count in Biden's plan. And that's where the problem is. Or all the ununionized workers in all these auto parts plants, the 750,000 people across the U.S., are not included in this one here. So it's not a labor bill. Uh, it's not a labor lobby. It's really a UAW-specific instrument. And you know, it, for those of us who have studied this closely, it's pretty naked. Just in terms of what it means for Canada, basically for 50 or 60 years, since the, since the mid-60s, the two countries have had a very integrated auto industry. You know, There's just a river that separates Windsor, Ontario from Detroit, Michigan. With this bill, if it does come to passage, 
Is it in some ways really the unraveling of that? It could be. Certainly if we implement an instrument that causes American consumers not to buy cars made in Canada, we have a problem. We make 2 million cars a year here in Canada. 75% of those go to the U.S. market. Our industry feeds off the U.S. market. But rather than being you know, a signature victory of his, uh, you know, if it goes through, I think it's one of the first early mistakes of his presidency. It will be very difficult for him to fix. And, uh, and let's take Canada and Mexico to the equation for a moment. One million of the two million cars that are made in Canada are by American car companies. And 50% of the parts in those cars come from the U.S., like $9 billion a year of auto parts from Michigan into Ontario. And 60% of those raw materials are like petrochemicals from Texas, you know. By trying to favor UAW assembly plants and ignoring the rest of the value chain and how the North American auto sector is set up, he's going to make the UAW really happy. But they represent about 125,000 employees out of a million in uh, the U.S. automotive supply chain and assembly. And, you know, the only thing that guarantees that there's U.S. content in U.S.-made vehicles are the trade agreements that they have. If you make cars in the U.S. for a U.S. consumer, then you can bring content in from anywhere else. There's no regulation. So if you're an auto parts supplier in Kentucky, by the way, now you have a new competition from, uh, ironically, Mexico, uh, China, Vietnam, Malaysia. It's actually a mess. I've said publicly he needs better advice. You have said that. I've heard that. Yeah. One point of view is that this isn't really aimed at the Canadian portion of the auto supply chain, but but it is trying to steer automakers away from investing in plants in Mexico where there is less expensive labor. The thing about that is that any policy that addresses Mexico is likely going to sweep up Canada. What's your take on that? I think it's naive of the administration to consider Mexico and Canada and the U.S. separate files in North American automotive production. The biggest employers in Mexico are American companies, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, Dodge, part of the Stellantis group. We spent a lot of time talking to the congressional people that put together this proposal, and they said to us, well, why don't you find a carve out for Canada? And they said, well, it's not that easy. We have 65 Canadian companies with 120 plants in Mexico, employing 45,000 people there. You know, because of you know what you said, you know, we've been doing this for 60 years at least together. I think the number actually we can go back 110 years. We've invested all over the continent. Even Donald Trump, with all his threats, and we think we're just using those threats to get better trade concessions. Ultimately, the most protectionist, brainless administration, at least in my history, backed off and understood that those American investments all over the continent are mirrored by Canadian investments. And to draw a distinction and to cut out Mexico only hurts the Americans. Yeah. There's a broader angle that I think is important to focus on, too, which is the protectionism angle. Biden, you know, he famously got behind the wheel of an F-150 EV and gave a big speech about how China has really raced ahead when it comes to electric vehicles, but that the U.S. is going to catch up. And in general, China's rise takes up a lot of his attention. We have five automakers here. And just a couple months ago, there was a lot of hope that one of them would build a big EV battery manufacturing plant in Canada. But so far, at least four of the five have announced plans to build in the U.S., It just makes me wonder whether automakers have read the tea leaves and are trying to be cautious about where they invest. I think that's a matter of timing. I mean, I certainly have seen the same investment announcements as you. If you take a look at the amount of automakers in North America, the opportunity is for about a dozen plants. And I think we're hot on the tails of a couple of investments here, maybe three or four, to be honest. I think Canada is 
an asset in that wanting to hedge against China's dominance in EVs. Because right now, the number one lithium processor in the world is China. And we've heard a lot of congressional detractors to this bill say, you're going to march us right into China's arms here. If you're going to mandate that uh, these plants have to be, or these cars have to be electric before the investments are ready, automakers are going to be forced to buy where they can get it. Well, the biggest source in North America is in northern Quebec and Ontario. And I, and I think part of what the prime minister and his team uh, were saying behind closed doors yesterday and the day before with congressional leaders is that, you know, you got your energy independence option with a peaceful partner just north of you. Don't screw it up. Car batteries uh, for EVs, we're talking six to 800 pound components that don't travel well. You know, if you're bringing that stuff in from other places, you're really talking about tens of millions of dollars a year in logistics costs. And those all go into the price of the car. Yeah. You said Manchin thinks we're marching people too fast into EVs. If that's true for the U.S., it's true for Canada too, right? We have a very aggressive EV adoption policy here. I think it's 100% of new vehicles have to be electric by 2035, so just 14 years. Is that too fast? Well, there's a kind of a yes and a no. It is too fast with what the landscape looks like right now. So accompanied with a target of going 100% electric or zero emission by 2035, as you've got to bring all the stakeholders to the table. That's mining, generating, distributing electricity providers, oil and gas industry who own a whole bunch of real estate called gas stations right now uh, could come into play. Crown agencies like Canada Post that have 6,500 post offices around the country. You know, all of those have to be part of the equation. Otherwise, it is too fast. And just to go back to your last point for one second, you know, you had the president went to Ford to drive electric F-150s yesterday or two days ago. He went to General Motors to drive a wonderful new product, the EV Hummer. But, you know, you have have to wonder why he has a purposeful blind spot for companies like Tesla, who are leading the rest of the industry in electric vehicle production. And it brings you back to, well, is this a UAW play or is it an electric vehicle play? He could have used the, the opportunity to go to Rivian, who did their IPO, American company, second highest valued auto company in the world. He's all good news, next generation stuff. Why is he picking where he's going? Well, the common link is the UAW. It isn't electrification. It isn't a climate agenda. It's a labor agenda in a tight Congress uh, leading up to a midterm. And so we can't be naive about that. You know, we have to understand that, yes, we have to speak the climate change language, but we also have to understand that the president has handcuffed himself here. And so a lot of the lobbying that we need to do is to the affected states that are non-UAW that there are great investments in in electric vehicles, and, and we've got to focus there. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. This is politics, what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yep. If you go back and look in history, right? Mm-hmm. In 1965, we had this auto pack deal with the U.S., and the day it was signed, as I understand it, Chrysler announced it would build... 80,000 cars in Canada. And I was reading a CBC article and to quote it, they said something like, Canada didn't get that deal by being polite. It threatened tariffs. And the New York Times credited Canada in these aggressive trade actions as forcing Washington's hand. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who think trying that would backfire. Uh, What's changed in your mind? Would that type of policy work? I mean, 1964 negotiations of a Canada-U.S. auto pact was in a world where there were no trade agreements between major trading partners. And there is no more integrated economic zone than Canada and the U.S. at the time. 
and of course, they were very reliant on us for uh, raw materials. We were mostly a raw materials country. I mean, uh, you know, the world is, uh, might as well have been a millennium that has passed technology-wise and attitudes on trade. We can still, of course, threaten retaliation. I don't know how you make American cars and American batteries without Canadian lithium, nickel, cobalt. But I don't know that we need to do that uh, at the moment. I do know that this is the same government that negotiated with the Americans from 2017 to 2019 on the new NAFTA. And I was there at every single round on every single piece of paper on the auto side. And I'll say this, that from the outside looking in, uh, you know, people think that uh, Donald Trump and the Americans were master negotiators using all their leverage to extract everything they wanted from their partners. The, the actual fact of what happened is that the Americans made a proposal on automotive rules. Uh, we told them it wasn't good enough. And they counterproposed themselves. And then while we were consulting on the counterproposal, where we said, hey, we need some clarity here because what you've put down doesn't make sense, they countered themselves again. And the real story of the NAFTA negotiations, at least on the auto side, was the master chess game that our chief negotiator put together. So, you know, those were the hawkish Republicans. Now we have the Democrats who are trying to hold together a very slim hold on the House. I'm not sure that traditional, you know, made-for-TV threats and counter-threats work. We didn't even have to use them with Trump. Uh, I imagine uh, we'll, we'll do something a little bit more sophisticated here as well. Just thinking about other scenarios, again, if this does go through, what are some of the other options? Could we ever develop our own auto supply chain, you know, even if our main market is still the U.S.? I mean, we make everything that is required here for a vehicle. I mean, for your listeners who don't know, the APMA has launched a project called Project Arrow to, to demonstrate that we're building our own car with, you know, stem to stern American, uh, sorry, Canadian design, engineer, and supply. The question is, is, can you do that profitably? You know, is your market big enough? Is your supply chain big enough to do that at a globally competitive profit level? The answer is no. Because we compete against the Europeans who have, you know, great high-end engineering design quality out of Germany, Italy, and the UK, but it's built on the backs of the lower-cost jurisdictions in uh, Eastern Europe that do a lot of the componentry. In China, you know, look, if your viewers uh, saw the vehicles that I've seen in China, the global quality, it, they're at a global quality index, but of course, they've got cheaper components in the background. Japan and Korea take advantage of lower-cost Asian countries. In North America, the matrix only works because we've got uh, Mexico in it. And, you know, cut and sew products, seatbelts, uh, windows, tires, it has to be done in a matrix that is North America versus Europe versus Asia. And so our market is only 2 million cars a year. That's 2% of the world's market. The U.S. is 17 million cars a year. That's 17% of the world's market. China is 35 million cars a year. So we certainly can punch above our weight in applied technology and in some of the battery science that is going to come to play here, but we can't do it alone. Yeah. The, you mentioned China. You mentioned sort of the globalization of the market. I mean, I'm also thinking when you look at what's different from 1965 and what we can threaten, the U.S. has really lost its manufacturing dominance. And I think now, to some extent, Biden really is distracted by a lot of bigger issues like the rise of China, like trying to restore manufacturing, not to mention the pandemic. What options are there for Canada's auto sector or other industries that are integrated with the U.S. if we're kind of too small, easy to take for granted as a trading partner? And this is the first example of that. 
<sighs> this is a question that has haunted uh, industrial planners, economists, corporate strategy, business development people uh, for a century of you know industrialized Canadian economy. The fact of the matter is that in the automotive sector, cars are big and they're complex and they don't travel well and they don't travel profitably. And all the other markets that we have been saying for years, let's access Japan and let's access Korea and let's access Europe, they're all very protected markets. A lot of non-tariff barriers, uh, you know, and before your listeners say, oh, here he is about non-tariff barriers. Look, in Japan, there's a weight tax on the vehicle. Depending on weight, you know, the, the types of cars we make in North America for North American taste get taxed. The, 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 the purchaser pays it on a one-time. You know, things that cost like 500 to $700 at registration. And then they have a displacement tax, anything over two liters, Japan and in Europe. Uh, so, you know, the kinds of engines that we make here in North America, you know, get taxed in a way that eats your margin, never mind the cost of sending them across the ocean. We have to send big, expensive commodities over land. You know, that's the best way to do it. We will always be tied to uh, the U.S. market here. And so the, as much as we try to diversify, I think what we also need to do is try to make sure that if we have any advantages that uh, we can exploit over the Americans, like, you know, Toronto, as it stands, the global headquarters of AI. In Montreal right now, the global headquarters of machine learning. EVs are high-voltage platforms that create, generate, share lots and lots of data. AI and machine learning, it will be where the milk gets in the coconut for autonomous vehicles. If we have it, we should work really hard to hold it because then you can't make autonomous vehicles without that access to that applied technology. And do we have the types of volumes of uh, battery chemistries that can drive 100% adoption? If we do, then we should focus very heavily on the processing of those minerals here. And so we'll never change the size or relative size to the U.S. And we won't change the fact that from a a market perspective, you either contemplate sending them by rail or by car uh, over land or across two oceans. We can be the leaders in the connectivity of vehicles, the electrification of vehicles, and we should try to exploit that. Yeah. Well, it's not over yet. The bill still has not been signed into law, so there's much more to see. But I really appreciate you coming on the show to share what you know and all your insight into this. Uh, anytime. I love the insight uh, that you put together for this uh, podcast and uh, glad to be part of it. That was Flavio Volpe, president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association of Canada. Thanks for listening to this week's show and thanks for your support and sharing episodes and rating us on whatever app you use to listen to this episode. Our producer Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music on this podcast. Yadula Hussein provided editing and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells provided web support. I'm Gabe Friedman and I'll be back next week. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or in any of our five weekly newsletters covering energy, the economy, finance, investing, and the workplace.